0: Merciless flames, which had eaten over the crest of the mountains, were licking at new timber on the west the slopes. Is black. Three times the fire was trailed, and thrice it leapt over the heads of the toiling man who has been working almost ceaselessly since Monday and to this charred Douglas fir smoke over the coast range today broadcast that the worst fire ever to strike this region was again out of control. Crow
1: lands to dispute. Tillamook burn haiku by William Reed.
0: Helpless before on rushing flames. Firefighting crews fled for their lives or were forced to stand helplessly by as the menace roared through the tops of virgin stands of timber. It is
1: August 14th, 1933, and a noisy fucking steam donkey is about to change the history of Oregon. This is some kick ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most bad-ass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History, is a presentation of ORhistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORhistory.com and click Donate. Anchoring for a hunk of made-in-Oregon cheese? Well, maybe you might drive past Forest Grove, down Highway 6, and head for the Cheese Factory in Tillamook, one of the Beaver State's most popular tourist destinations. And heading down this windy, scenic road, you will travel through one of Oregon's formerly greatest treasures, the Tillamook State Forest. Before man had entirely had his way with Mother Nature, the forest in this area was monumental. The trees were legendary, colossal. There were trees in this area that were 10 or 12 feet in diameter. Some of the trees had stood here for a thousand years or more. It was a thriving forest of Douglas fir, Sitka spruce, hemlock, and western red cedar. Many animals enjoyed a rich habitat. Described as a fairy tale forest, it was indeed diverse and varied. It was ancient. And by the time the rains came in the fall of 1933, it was almost all gone. Oregon has always been a center for logging. And in the 1920s, logging meant money. And many of our state's livelihoods depended on the activity. But amidst all the let the good times roll attitudes, there seems to even then have been a hint of concern as to what the activity was doing to our thriving forests. As one Oregonian remembered, living on a logging camp at the time, These were sad days, too. I watched as the magnificent trees, with heart, circulation, a life of their own, cracked to the earth, their feathery greenery dragged through the dust or mud, The great hulks were then bucked into lengths and now, quite dead, loaded onto cars and dumped into a pond. To think of all the small animals and birds, scattered and scared, forced to find their way to new homes farther away to escape the menace, man, was depressing indeed. But the way I saw it though, These seemingly ruthless lumbermen were not to blame. These stands of timber seemed endless. And in this growing progressive nation, much lumber was needed for the construction of homes and buildings. In a sense, these lumbermen were doing a great service to the nation. And this attitude of progress me. and service in Oregon's forests continued for decades.
2: The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved and read
1: August of 1933, a summer of record oven-like temperatures found the woods of Oregon in a precarious state. Even the very forests themselves seemed cognizant of their perilous position. The trees, the animals, the effects that actually made the forest knew that danger was upon them. On the 14th of August, A bear wandered into a Cascades campsite and extinguished a campfire. The Bruin was reported to have carefully filled the hole that contained the burning fire and then tackled a pot of hot beans that had been simmering over the blaze. The true residents of Oregon's forests were doing everything in their power to protect their beautiful treed homes. But alas, man let them down. But August 14, 1933 wouldn't be remembered for the Bruins' brave bustle and busyness in the Southern Cascades. No. August 14, 1933 would be a day of Oregon infamy for another fire. An inferno that raged for weeks and destroyed one of the most beautiful and thriving tracts of ancient forest the state of Oregon would ever know. August 14th was just yet another day in a stretch of unbearably oppressive summery weather. Mother Nature was feeling quite parched and dry and she was punishing wet-footed Oregonians with her arid whims. By midday, August 14th found the temperatures in the 90s and the relative humidity in the low 20s. Keep in mind, relative humidity measures the actual amount of moisture in the air as a percentage of the maximum amount of moisture the air can hold. For a city like Portland, for instance, The high relative humidity averages 84, and the low only gets down to 58%. A relative humidity of 20% put the fire danger through the roof. And due to these concerns, area foresters had suggested that loggers cease operations in the timberlands. But there was no requirement that the outfits heeded this warning. Resident Historian, Doug Kank Crispin.
2: This is Doug Kank Crispin, Resident Historian for ORHistory.com, and I am in the Tillamook State Forest. You might be able to hear Gales Creek behind me a little bit, but it's absolutely amazing, incomprehensible, to imagine the inferno sweeping through this very same area in August of 1933.
1: Somewhere up Gales Creek Canyon, a logging concern had just finished up the lunch hour, and the steam donkey shook and belched as it noisily shuddered to life. What the fuck is a steam donkey? It was a cornerstone of Oregon logging technology since the 1880s, and this contrivance has been credited at starting the bird. A period description of a steam donkey states that,
0: We finally arrived at the donkey setting where I viewed a rather large upright black boiler with smoke pouring from its stack. The foreman had steam
1: up and was ready to log. The engineer, or donkey puncher, was greasing
0: around the two large drums of line or cable in the front of the boiler. The frame of the large machine was attached to two large logs fastened together in the shape of a sled. In fact, it was a donkey sled. The steam donkey was an old Willamette model with two wide-faced drums
1: for the line, one for the main line and one for the haulback or trip line. The lines went through the blocks in the high-lead or spar tree which George Edwards had topped or rigged. The spar tree was stabilized by four guy lines attached near the top of the tree and to stumps or trees some distance from the base. Dad took me out through the rush to the end of the whistle wire, which in fact was only a wire clothesline. The wire was fashioned to a spring pole on the donkey sled with a short line to the steam whistle. A sharp jerk on the wire would cause the whistle to blow. A good whistle-punk could almost play a tune of staccato blasts as he jerked the wire. The number of toots would be the signal for the engineer to do a number of things. One whistle was to stop if the donkey was running. Two whistles was to run the rigging, the chokers, and the butt rigging back to the woods. Two and two was to go back slowly, and three was to go ahead cautiously. There were several signals for the engineer to follow even a signal for a man hurt. The 1933 Tillamook burn is generally attributed with having originated in Gales Creek Canyon. The legend goes that a logging company belonging to one Mr. Elmer Lyda started the fire just after lunch before word to shut down logging operations had come to the outfit. For some time, controversy was rampant that the operation was going for just one more log and had not heeded the halt operations warning. The story goes that the steam donkey was dragging a huge dry Douglas fir across an even drier long-ago felled cedar tree. Friction. Heat. Almost no moisture in the air. A tiny unseen wisp of white smoke rose from the felled tree as the steam donkey drug that last massive log across the desiccated forest floor. The fire burst with great intensity just after the 1 p.m. whistle. The Gales Creek loggers did all they could to battle this vicious and growing fire. But by the end of the day, the blaze had consumed 1,500 acres. And in the days that followed, The weather became drier and the fire grew larger. In the first few days of the burn, even with the tenacity that the fire grew, there seemed to be at least a hint of optimism that Mother Nature would play nice and become friendly again. All we can do is hope favoring winds will carry enough moisture to the coast range summit so our boys can check the fire's progress," said C.C. Scott, manager of the Northwest Forest Fire Protective Association. But Mother Nature played with the operations and became, well, unnatural. As just one of many examples, Mr. Scott had been in an airplane flying over the fire, attempting to ascertain the progress. He saw that air currents, described as freakish, had lifted the conflagration over an entire mile of virgin, unscathed green forest, and then abruptly crashed the blaze to the ground, where it began to spread with massive damage and resolve. She was in control of the situation. The fate of the firefighters was in her hands, and she did as she pleased. Mother Nature can be a real bitch. August 15th, 1933, found the relative humidity in Portland at 36%. Mother Nature was not finished
2: spreading the fire. Men were shipped in from all over the state to fight the burn, thousands of them. They came from logging camps, from sawmills, and from Civilian Conservation Corps programs. Remember, this is during the Great Depression, and men from urban areas from all over the nation have come to Oregon to work on federally funded programs. Men from New York, from Detroit, from Chicago, and other large cities with very little backwoods experience, but with an eagerness to find employment. These men were trucked to the Tillamook, They were given basic hand tools, pointed in the right direction, and then were told,
0: Now go fight that giant
1: fucking fire! The men faced a massive, continuous wall of fire at places at least 15 miles long. The northeast wind blew it with such wildness that there was no way to approach the blaze, helpless before the inferno. The lucky ones were forced to just stand by as the flames roared through the tops of virgin stands of timber. Scores more had to flee for their lives. Thoughts of preserving timber were suddenly abandoned. The operation focused their efforts on saving the lives of the firefighters, and the toils were redoubled.
0: Hundreds of men unused to the woods have been guided safely through several tormenting days and nights when the forest seemed filled with fire and the air was strangling thick with smoke.
1: The conditions they faced were unimaginable.
0: They've only had ten hours sleep in the last four days. They've been fighting the fire like terriers, jumping in and slashing away when they could, falling back when they were forced to.
1: Sightseers and curiosity seekers had to be publicly warned to stay the fuck away.
0: To one who has not walked the fire trails up the mountainsides and down the ravines, firefighting appears unspectacular. City dwellers who climb into cars and rush to the forest fires seeking a thrill are often disappointed. Forest fires must be viewed from either a distance or right on the fire line. To see it from the latter vantage point requires arduous climbing. Even then, the spectacle is sometimes disappointing. The fire may be creeping through the underbrush, with only an occasional burst of furious flame. When an evening breeze comes up, and the fires race for the crowns of the trees, even experienced woodsmen seek safety. At that time, a city dweller has no place along the forest trails.
1: Even as he was soaring at 12,000 feet above the blaze, B.B. Thurber, the Oregonian's flying reporter, observed trees literally exploding from the heat, hurtling dust and flying embers as they burst with a roar. The fire kept burning. It kept burning for a week more. And on August 24th, 1933, the Tillamook literally exploded. An atomic blast is the only comparable incident we can use to illustrate this burst. A dull, red, angry cloud rose from the inferno that was 40 miles wide and 40,000 feet high. The very blaze itself created hurricane-force winds that uprooted gigantic fir trees and hurled them to great distances. Ships 500 miles out at sea were rained upon with smoldering forest debris. It was the most rapid advance shown by a forest fire in the 20th century. And inconceivable as it may be, conditions just continued to worsen. By Saturday, the 26th of August, the humidity had dropped to 18%, and the east wind was howling to nearly a gale. Some residents of Portland were able to actually see the glow of the burn in the night sky. The coastal city of Tillamook experienced days of near total darkness. In the middle of the day, streetlights were turned on, cars were unable to drive without their headlights, chickens came in to roost, and business nearly ground to a halt. Deep, cloud like banks of smoke rolled off the Coast Range mountains, and as they shifted, so did the tiny amount of light that was filtered through the black haze, described as weird. It would shift from moment to moment. At times the light would be red or yellow, amber or orange, white or a sickly blue. The streets were covered with ashes, and the raging winds carried needles, moss, and leaves which floated down upon the town. Finally, mercifully, 23 days after the initial puff of smoke, Mother Nature had tired of her folly on the Oregon Forest. On September fifth, a hard, pelting rain fell on the fire for several days. The fire still continued to smolder for months, and in the aftermath, as historian Ellis Lucia accurately stated, a new American desert was created. Two hundred and thirty nine thousand acres were destroyed or an area of about 375 square miles. The amount of lumber these ancient trees would have yielded to the screaming sawmill blade would have built one million homes.
2: Historian Ellis Lucia spent some time examining studies of the cause of the burn and actually dismissed the One More Log, or Log Hungry Jitters, assertions as myth and loose talk of the time. Lucia felt that Elmer Leda's Gale Creek Canyon logging enterprise had been blamed unreasonably for the disaster. Lita claimed that he had found three flashlight lenses where the Gales Creek fire had started and declared that sabotage by an outbid competitor was the motive. Additionally, in dismissing the blame on Lita, historian Lucia noticed that there were several reports of another fire burning ahead of the Gales Creek blaze. This fire could have been the actual start of the Tillamook burn, but it really is a frivolous argument. The entire forest was in an intensely combustible state. A fire would have started in the tinder-dry Tillamook Forest, whether it was caused by a steam donkey's dragging friction or some other flash of spark.
1: Rarely do forest fires burn the trees down to piles of glowing embers. Oftentimes, the flames will attack dead trees and dry brush, but just scorch the living trees. Millions of dead snags stood standing in the apocalyptic landscape that the burn created frequently, these blaze-scarred snags contained sound and usable wood inside. With the advance of World War II and the high prices for wood that followed that martial endeavor, the salvaging of lower-quality timber became, well, profitable. In addition, Oregon Governor Charles Sprague and the counties that contained the birds Created a novel new project for the newly created Tillamook Desert. The state would issue bonds to finance the replanting and also garner thousands of volunteers to plant new trees, creating a new Tillamook Forest to be cut at a future date. For years, buses of schoolchildren would visit the forest and, using their hoe daddies, Plant tiny Douglas fir seedlings that were to be grown and chopped down when matured to the most profitable height. As Governor Sprague stated in 1941, I hope that future generations of Oregonians will find my monument growing in the forests of this state. And let us be clear, dear ass kicker Governor Sprague visualized a monument to logging and clear cutting. And
0: profit I can't see the forest for the tree. Now don't get me wrong, it's not that I knock it. It's just that I am not in a market for a girl who wants to love only me.
1: The sentiment is still with us in our era. The mighty Tillamook Forest was indeed reborn only to be recut again. Tom McCall, Oregon's environmental governor, dedicated the new Tillamook State Forest in July of 1973.
0: More than a million snags are gone. And in their place is a new stand of Oregon's economic lifeblood. The trees will grow and suffer our harvest and grow again. The forest Again will feed us. and you cry and grieve and we'll both live a lot longer if you live without me,
2: As a child, I remember hearing the tragedy of the Tillamook burn and the ancient forest that it ravaged. I heard of the mighty trees that were incinerated, the scenic beauty that was negated, The herds of deer found not scorched, but suffocated due to the hurricane-force winds that literally sucked the air from their lungs. The tale was always presented in an ecological framework, an example of how the greed of man could destroy the environment, our state's natural endowment, in this case, an old-growth forest of staggering immenseness that could never be replaced. But you know what? Fuck it. Fuck that forest. Fuck the forest, fuck the trees, fuck any lingering thought that you had for ecological sanctity. It doesn't matter one fucking bit. Because as I read the accounts of this fire, one thing kept jumping out at me from the 1933 papers. Over and over and over again, the reporters conveyed the staggering losses from the blaze. And staggering they were indeed. But the losses were always expressed in terms of board feet of finished lumber. No one gave a shit about the forest. It was all about the trees they were going to harvest. If that fire had never started in Gales Creek Canyon in August of 1933, we would still be in the same place that we are today because they were going to fucking clear-cut that forest. Cut every fucking tree down. A sea of giant stumps. It matters not if it was a logger or a fiery incendiary or some greasy steaming donkey. The Tillamook Forest would have never survived for you and I to walk in. To dig the trees and the animals and the shrubs and the ferns. To do our crunchy, dirty hippie, modern druid of the new nature cult thing. That forest was destined for destruction and was fated to forever be just a memory in Oregon history.
1: I remember hearing about the Tillamook Burn as a kid. My dad would point at the trees as we drove to the coast range and say they were from the Tillamook Burn. He actually did some planting with the scouts when he was a kid, and I'd look at the small trees and marvel at what I don't know. Just that there were small trees and some other bigger trees that burned down. And I went to the Northwest Forestry Center, long before it was the World Forestry Center, dude. And I loved the diorama of the burn. There on the second floor, narrated by Governor Tom McCall. And the Tillamook burned. But let's be real. The guys who planted the burn didn't do it with you and I in mind, dear ass kicker. Every time you and your lesbian girlfriend with her white girl dreads turds for hair make out in your tent in some Tillamook State Forest campground, the baby Jesus cries, and old-school Oregon timbermen like Lynn Kronmiller throw up in their graves. The new Tillamook wasn't planted to play in. It was planted because people needed jobs and trees meant jobs. Faced with the reality that trees weren't forever, the people of Oregon decided to play God. But a Henry Stamper kind of God that goes into the forest to take some shade off the ground. And those fuckers got most of the wood anyway. The Tillamook coal miners got a huge percentage of the wood out of the burn and into the mills. It wasn't the wood that was lost. It was the forest. The Tillamook State Forest of today isn't even a shitty copy of the Old Forest. Now, don't get me wrong, I love the Tillamook State Forest. I love to camp out under the firs and drink Black Butte Porter while I listen to the Swainson's thrush toot its little jazz bird call. But while I mourn the Old Forest, I'm kind of glad it burned before those old-school Oregon timber guys got the chance to get at it. One way or the other, by the time I was born, the old Tillamook Forest was going to be gone anyway. And now, this way, when it basically all went at once, it's a dream forest, an ideal, and it's mine. And ancient as it was, it is forever young, like Kurt Cobain or Jimi Hendrix. It literally burned out rather than fading away like so many other great forests in Oregon. When I walk through the 1933 Tillamook forest in my mind, it's whole and it has the potential pre-burn in my imagination to stay the way I want it to be, wild, impenetrable, mysterious, and terrible in its ruggedness. Out of desperation, our predecessors became selfless and gave us this one shadow forest we rightly treasure because we honestly cannot comprehend of what was taken from us. And I I wonder, what other remaining Oregon treasure are we now managing so that future generations can enjoy it when All the while, we're just drinking their milkshake, drinking it all up. The real story of the Tillamook burn is that it is too late. To paraphrase the old McCall saying, the Oregon of abundance was a nice place to visit, but we don't get to live there. Thank you for listening, Ass Kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Cank Crispin and Andy Lindberg. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Kickass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you, and we're looking to do more. Soon, we will ask your help with a big new project. In the meantime, share the podcast with your ass-kicking friends and stay tuned for our announcement. You can also support the podcast today. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. As always, we'd like to thank our friends at East Side Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. And be sure to join us on our historic Halloween show on October 31st, 2013 at 8 p.m. at the Jack London Bar. Historians Joe Streckert, Finn John and our own resident historian Doug Cank Crispin will spin true tales of horror, murder, and mayhem of the Pacific Northwest. There will be a costume contest with prizes, live music, and three burlesque dancers to help us pass the evening. It's a kick-ass Halloween party that you won't want to miss. So, Come on down to the Jack London bar on Halloween night 2013. Just don't get too close to that heavily bearded burlesque dancer. I do believe that that is Mr. Kane Crispin. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass! The sounds of Gales
0: Creek.